Shout out to Clarity for supporting this episode and providing us with the samples. I've been battling allergies for years now. Let me tell you, they've been a real ordeal in my life. Luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available release sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to ClaritinD.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself... What is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. What's up, gang? Welcome to The Greatness Machine. I'm your host, Darius Mershazdeh. I'm so pumped to have you here with me. Now, listen, The Greatness Machine, we're about two things. Number one, people who are living their passions. And number two, those who are creating greatness in the world and doing both of these things despite the odds against them. Each episode, we're going to feature interviews with game changers, business leaders, you know, telling us their origin stories, what made them tick, what got them to where they are now. Why? So it can help you step into your greatness within your life, your business, and your career. Occasionally, you might hear a few solo episodes from myself, moi, as I say, as I leverage my 20 years of entrepreneurship as a CEO and founder to help you grow and level up in your journey to scale your life and your business. So come be a fly on the wall, enjoy the conversation, and I'm stoked to have you here with me. Wow, what an amazing episode with Amy Marin. Uh, we got to talk all about her book, 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do, her podcast. I mean, this girl has been through so many amazing like like things. She's just done so many amazing things in her life, um, but really got to dig deep on the 13 things mentally strong people don't do. I mean, I, I was a really fun episode, great person to be interviewed, and really got to learn about like the hardships she's, she's been through in her life and how it got her to, you know, write this book that's just changed so many people's lives around the world. So uh, stay tuned. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Guys, welcome to today's episode of The Greatness Machine. I'm your host, Darius Mershazi, and boy, do we have a special guest. Amy Morin is in the house. What's up, Amy? Hello. Man, I'm so pumped to have you here. I saw that you scheduled a while back, and I told my team, I'm like, yes, made it happen. So, so good to have you on the show today. Um, how's your Friday going? So far, so good. Oh, fry yay, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you mind if I do a little bit of housekeeping and then we'll get rocking? Please do. Let's do it. So uh, for listeners who are new to the show, The Greatness Machine, we're about two things. People who are living their passions and those who are creating greatness in the world. And Amy is neither short of passion nor greatness. Uh, you know, so I, I had heard of your book and we're going to be talking about her book in just a second here. But um, I had heard of her book, 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do. And I was like... I want to read that book and got a chance to check out the book. And I told my team, I'm like, Hey, we need to reach out to Amy. Uh, you know, our show's getting a lot of attention right now. I think this is a good chance to, to get someone on the show that I really want to talk to. Uh, really it's because I, I really believe that creating greatness in the world, it comes down to having some mental, like, like agility and being able to, to handle tough things. And I've been on this, like David Goggins, like, like test yourself, like, like being able to see in the dark thing lately. And I was like, man, I really want to talk to you about that. So I'm so pumped to have you here. Do you mind if I 
uh, do a little formal bio, and then we can hop into uh, our favorite part of the show, which is origin story. Does that work? Sounds good to me. Very cool. So, man, uh, I just want to say this: like, like you have like like you have like one of those badass bios where someone's like, "Oh, I want to be her when I grow up." Um, <laughs> uh, first of all, my first thing I noticed, which I really appreciated about you and your bio, is the four letters LCSW after your name. Um, for for listeners who don't know what that means, do you mind telling them what an LCSW is? It stands for Licensed Clinical Social Worker. Did, so did you? So some people go and get their master's degree to do that, and others just get it straight out of undergrad, and then they'll go t- take the test and whatnot. Did you do the master's? Or did you just go and take the test? How'd you do it? Uh, yeah. So I went to undergrad in Maine, and then I went to graduate school in Maine, and it took like two years after graduate school in order to get the clinical part because you get a master's degree, and the way that it worked there is. You have to then work as a therapist under somebody for two years, and then you can take your clinical exam. Okay, gotcha. So the reason you're like, Darius, why are you asking all these questions about LCSW? Like, come on. I mean, it's cool, but but like, is someone really that interested? And I was telling Amy before the show, I said, I grew up with a mom who was an LCSW. So my mom was a licensed clinical social worker. And that just meant that like, whenever I had issues, I had my mom who was like this therapist who would drill into me and, and she came out from this really like therapeutic standpoint. Um, but you, you, you took kind of a different angle than my mom did. She worked in like for the County and did all the, you know, all that sort of stuff. Um, you, you've, you've taken this more modern approach. You're editor in chief of very well mind author, as I mentioned before, of 13 things, uh, mentally strong people don't do host of the very well mind podcast, which is kicking ass and taking names. And you guys are just rocking over there and in your boat, nonetheless, when we're talking about that. And uh, we were talking as well, uh, prior to the show, but man, you have a rocking, uh, TEDx talk, the secret of becoming mentally strong that has over 22 million views, which is no small feat. So man, how do you get time to do anything, but just kick ass and take names the way you've been doing it? Right. That's a good question. But all of those things have happened. They've unfolded over the course of many years. It's been nine books now, nine years since I wrote the first book. So although it sounds like a lot of stuff, I've had time to to build those things up as well. Yeah. What's, what's Well, the, the, uh, Adrian Brody, when he won his Oscar, he said, my dad told me it takes 13 years to become an overnight success. So this is kind of a, a, a good symbol of that. So, you know, here at the Greatness Machine, we love origin stories. Would you mind like kind of take us back? Tell us a little bit about your background. You know, what, how did you get to where you got to? I love hearing about people's you know stories of got them to where they're at today. Sure. So I grew up in rural Maine in a town of about 3000 people. And all we were really known for was the Dexter Shoe Factory. Um, everybody in our town made shoes. And, and not a lot of people leave that town when they when they get older. And I grew up with my parents. I have an older sister who also became a therapist. And I was the the shy, overweight kid growing up. Like, I never spoke in class, even though I was in a small school with like the same, you know, 15 kids were in my class in high school that I basically had in my classes when I was uh, in kindergarten. And I was so shy, I didn't talk at all. Like my um, senior year of high school, my English teacher would read my essays in front of the class because I couldn't read it. And, uh, and I was just, um, you know, shy. I like to play sports. Um, didn't really know what I wanted to do after high school. I thought I would uh, go into medicine And my first college major was uh, to be pre-med. And I thought, I'll go on to be a doctor. But my first day of college, we had to dissect cats. And everybody in the room was so excited to dissect a cat. And I wasn't. 
And I realized, like, I don't actually want to be a doctor. I was just in love with the idea of being a doctor. So I called my sister, who had just graduated with her degree in psychology, and I said, hey, I need a new major, and I need it today. What do you think? Should I just switch it to psychology? And she said, no, you should go into social work because at least then you get a degree, like a license when you're done, because a bachelor's degree in psychology is so broad that sometimes it's tougher to find a job than if you have a social work degree. So I switched my degree to social work. I didn't even really know what social work was, but at the moment I didn't care. I just knew I didn't want to dissect a cat the following day. So I thought I can switch it later. It's my first year. So I'll just find something else. But fell in love with social work. I thought, oh, this is really cool. So decided I would uh, try to go on to graduate school. Didn't get into the first school that I applied for. But my favorite comeback story is that the school that uh, didn't accept me for graduate school now has my book on their list of recommended reading for all the freshmen. Oh, no Right. So 10 years before that, they wouldn't accept my money to let me go to school there. But now they make all of their first year students read my book, but did find another school that accepted me, uh, got my graduate degree, went on to become a therapist. And then shortly into my work as a therapist, my mom passed away. And um, that led to a whole like new interest in mental strength of figuring out how do you become mentally strong when you're going through tough times. And it was no longer about my, um, the things I'd learned in college and the textbooks sort of way of looking at mental strength. It was like, okay, how do you, you know, what skills that I'm teaching people are, are going to work for me in this situation. And it really sparked my interest in learning as much as I could about going through tough times and grief and mental strength in general. So when, when you, um, backing up to when you were growing up, I mean, were you someone that was that you would have considered like had like strong more mental fortitude or was it was this just something that like like obviously how going through something hard, which many people go through, um, doesn't prompt them to suddenly dive deep on the subject. What do you think prompted you to like really like what what really clicked with you where you're like, oh, I really want to learn more about that. Was it just the event with your mom or was it something growing up that really like like itched at you? What, what, What was it? What do you think it was? Well, you know, I'd always struggled as a kid. And because I was so shy, painfully shy that my friends always spoke for me. And, Mm. uh, and I was the kid who like, even though I got good grades in school, I hated it. And I could never verbalize what it was that I hated about school. The adults used to ask me like, what do you hate about it? And all I could say was it was a long day, but I used to throw up before school almost every single morning for years and years and years. And and like for a long time, we didn't know what exactly we couldn't pinpoint it. And to this day, all I know was like, I just hated everything about school. And, and I had promised myself, if I get to be an adult and I have a job, I don't ever want to do anything that makes me feel that bad ever again. If I ever have a job and I start to get sick on Sunday nights, because I think about going to work on Monday morning, I'm not going to do it. And, and so I grew up just thinking, I want a job that I like, and I want to do something that I want to do. And when my mom passed away, it was like, I just felt like that same seven-year-old kid where I was like, you know, I hate Mondays, but I also then hated Tuesdays and Wednesdays. I thought, how do you get through life without my mom? And so I think it was a combination of all of those things that really made me say, okay, I want to know, like, (laughs) I don't want to be like this as an adult. I don't want to spend my adult years feeling physically and emotionally miserable. I want to figure out how do I work through this? Yeah, my gosh. Were you, were you and your mom pretty tight? 
We were. So she was kind of like the rock that would get me through it. And, you know, in the first grade, I would be crying because I didn't want to go to school. I'd be like, Mom, if you love me, you wouldn't make me go. And then she'd <laughs> feel so bad. She'd start to cry. And she's like trying to, you know, shove me on the bus in the morning. <laughs> and she would always be like, you know, Amy, you'll, you'll be fine. You can get through it. And I think once she passed away, I was like, you know, I don't have anybody to tell me that anymore. And I don't if I don't have that person to tell me, like, I got to figure this out. Yeah. So interesting. So I, my dad passed away when I was 22, but, but, but he was kind of a, a, a hard ass and I didn't feel the same way. Like I didn't have that same moment. I was like, Oh God, because this guy's been fucking hard. <laughs> he, right, he created right. so much. He, I mean, he created a lot of hardship for me in a different way. Um, so there was a little bit of relief when he passed just because he had been sick and stuff. But, um, yeah, it's interesting. I think it's interesting when you lose your parent, when you're really young, you know, like, like, like I see a lot of people who are like, I'm now, I think we're probably close in age. I'm, I'm in my early forties. Um, and so it's like, I see them and then their dads are still kicking it. You know, my mom's still right. alive. Right. Yes. And they're like, yeah, I'm hanging, I'm going skiing with my dad. I'm like, they're like, you know, where's your dad? I'm like, oh, my dad's been dead for half my life, you know? Right. So it's, it, I do think that there's an element of hardship that comes with losing a parent at a young age. Um, and so, so when, when that happened and, and I was just going to say, like, it's kind of funny that, that you, I mean, it's not funny. I, I don't know. That's a little bit funny. It's a little bit funny that like you're like super shy, didn't talk. And then now you do podcasting and public speaking. It's like <laughs> the irony of it all. You right. Know? If somebody would have told me, you know, when I was 12, this is what you're going to grow up to do. Like I wouldn't have believed it. And I would have thought, <laughs> well, then I'm not growing up because I, like, it's like my biggest fear, the absolute last thing I would ever want to do in the world. Um, but fortunately, along the way, I learned, ah, you know, public speaking actually is not the worst thing. <laughs> uh, what, what, what's what's the worst thing then if, if, if public speaking is not in your mind? I think losing loved ones is the worst yeah, thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. I, I totally agree with you. Um, so so fast forward. So you decided you wanted to have a, a calling, a life that you wanted to get be pumped, not have the Sunday scaries, which I didn't even know that was a thing until I uh, – not, this show's not about me, but I didn't even know there was such a thing as Sunday scaries until I was like in my mid thirties. So wow. yeah. Right. I was, I'm an entrepreneur. So I always like just built my own business. Like, like I didn't have to show up and have some asshole that I didn't want to like work with. Right. So, right. uh, so you, you didn't want to have the Sunday, Monday, Tuesday or Wednesday scaries. So what happens next? Um, so, you know, I just really just started. I thought, you know, I have this amazing opportunity. I'm a therapist. I have case study after case study of people who come into my therapy office all day long and I can just learn from them. Hopefully I'm teaching them, helping them work on things, but I can also be learning from them and figure out these people that go through tough times, like how do they still become a nice person on the other side of it? The people that go through extreme hardships and yet they're stronger, the people that are struggling with depression or anxiety, but like here they are asking for help because they want to feel better. Like what is it that makes people tick? And because I also saw other people that maybe struggled 20 years ago with something and they would come in and feel like their life stopped. Like they just were never able to enjoy life again. And mm. I really wanted to know what kept these people stuck and how do I make sure that I can move forward? And one of the things I learned was, okay, it's not always about what people do. Sometimes it's more about what people don't do. Mm. And as an LCSW, like rule number one of being a therapist, because we're positive people is when somebody comes into your therapy office, you point out their strengths hey, you're doing this really well. Keep doing that. And you're not really supposed to talk about weaknesses. But I was like, you know, that's great and all. And I want to cheer people on. But 
like if I were going to go see a physical trainer and they told me to run on the treadmill for an hour and I was motivated, like I'd do it. But I'd be really upset if they didn't tell me that the two jelly donuts that I ate for breakfast really don't make up for the hour I did on the treadmill. Like it's way easier to give up an extra jelly donut than it is to add an hour of time on the treadmill. Sure. And I thought I'm doing the same thing. If I don't point out to people that maybe they have one or two counterproductive bad habits, then they could keep adopting all of these good habits and looking me in the eye and being like, hey, Amy, why isn't this stuff working? I'm, am I not good enough? I didn't want people to feel like that. So I wanted to say, hey, let's figure out what the what that thing or two, maybe that just one little mental habit is keeping you stuck. And how do we get rid of that so that all the good habits you already have are much more effective? Shout out to Clarity for supporting this episode and providing us with the samples. Hey there, friends. It's Darius from Shazda here, and I have a little confession to make. You see, I've been battling allergies for years now. And let me tell you, They've been a real ordeal in my life. Allergies have been my constant companion. They stop me from fully enjoying the little things in life, canceling plans with friends because of sudden allergy attack to missing out on an outdoor activity because of the sneezing fits. Allergies have been a real nuisance. Luckily, for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing and a runny nose itchy, watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. I've been a Claritin D user for many, many years now, and let me tell you, it's made a world of difference. Since I started using Claritin D, my symptoms have improved dramatically. Now, I can breathe easier, enjoy outdoor activities without worrying about sneezing fits, and truly live my life without being held back by allergies. Ready to live as if you don't have allergies, it's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter now. You don't even need a prescription. Go to ClaritinD.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear, uses directed. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. In the world of successful partnerships, names like Procter & Gamble, Ben & Jerry, and Supply and Demand echo through business history. But when it comes to growing your business, who are the perfect partners? That's you and Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. We're talking from launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the, did we hit a million dollar order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling shipping supplies or promoting productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Picture this, a time when my business was facing a tough hurdle and I wasn't sure how to break through. But then came the breakthrough moment, a game changer that took my business to the next level. You know, what I absolutely adore about Shopify is its unparalleled ability to adapt and grow with your ambitions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 75 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Darius, all lowercase. That's D-A-R-I-U-S. Go to shopify.com slash Darius now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Darius. 
And so, um, and so did you start cataloging this? Like, like, like obviously that was it a thing where you're like, Oh, I noticed that, that this, this is a consistently issue that people have and I'm going to self-correct, like walk us through, like what, it, what was the process on that? You know, like I didn't do obviously any formal research. I wasn't writing things down. I was just making my own mental notes of like, Oh, okay. This person didn't do this. This person didn't do that. This guy did. And look at what happened to him. And just really paying as close of attention as I could and then talking to people about it. Like, what do you think about this? And what if you tried subtracting this from your life? What do you think would happen? So it was just more of an ongoing experimenting, having conversations and just observing what was going on. And, and let me ask you a question, because I think that like a lot of times, especially when it comes to and we'll talk in, in, in a little bit here about about the, the 13 things that you really promote. But, you know, like. I found at least you can logically understand something and emotionally not be able to stop it. Right. So I'll use the example right. of like, I mean, I'll use, you know, like resenting other people's success, right? Like I can, I can, and that's one of the examples in the book is, okay. I, of course, logically I can appreciate why I should not think like what do they call it in German, like schadenfreude. Like I want bad right. things to happen to other people, right? Like no, nobody wakes up and says that to themselves in the morning yet. Like a lot of us kind of do it. We're like, man, fuck that guy. I want him to fail. Right. So right. like it's clearly there's an emotional disconnect there. Like what, well, like when you start and, and that was kind of my biggest, one of my biggest questions with a lot of the stuff when I was reading the book, I was like, well, yeah, logically all this stuff makes sense. But like emotionally, I think this is where people get caught. So what are your thoughts around this difference between understanding we shouldn't do something, but then having that emotional itch where we just do it and we can't have that. There's like a lack of control. Yeah. Knowing something and doing something. I mean, two totally different things. Like nobody smokes cigarettes and says smoking is amazing for you. Like we know it's bad for us, but yet how many people do it anyway? It's not that it's a uh, an issue of ignorance, but sometimes just being aware of our habits helps. Like so often, maybe you don't realize that you do something. We'll take public speaking, for example, until you become a podcaster or a public speaker. Maybe you don't realize that you say, um, every other word. And then when you watch yourself back, you realize, oh goodness, mm. I have this habit. And then when you become aware of it, then you can say, am I going to do something about it or not? You have to make a choice. And if you choose to do something about it, just becoming aware of it can be the first step. And then you notice how often you're actually doing it. And then you can think, okay, do I want to correct this? And having that information uh, is just the first step. And so like, I can't make anybody be mentally strong, but I can give you the, the head knowledge. Just like for me, when I was learning these things, I was like, okay, I'm a therapist. I kind of already know this stuff, but I'm seeing it in action. But what do I want to do about it? And I had to figure out, do I really want to make these changes in my life or not? And the things that motivate people are different. If we go back to the example of smoking, like if you have a friend who smokes cigarettes and you say, that's really bad for your lungs, they may or may not care. They might be motivated by the fact that smoking costs them a lot of money. So the argument that may eventually get them to quit is if they had one of those apps that kept track of how much they're spending on cigarettes every year, or they found Here's an example with women that when they said this is really bad for your lungs, women didn't quit smoking. But when they said it causes wrinkles, women were much more likely to put down the cigarettes. Mm. So it's really about realizing, OK, knowing, having this fact might not change my motivation or change my behavior. But then we got to look at the pros and the cons. Like, what's this thing costing me? What do I get out of doing it? Because we wouldn't do something if we didn't gain something from it. 
And is there an alternative, something else I can swap this out for maybe that isn't so harmful for my health? That makes total sense. It's funny. You just reminded me there's a Charlie Munger has a quote. It's like, you show me someone's incentives and I'll show you their behavior. Right. Yeah. And so like, like the wrinkle quote. So, so it's like, Oh no, I love like, I, dude, listen, like you're talking to an ex smoker, like when I was in my twenties. So it's like, like the, I like nostalgically remember enjoying cigarettes, but like, yeah, I don't remember like the part where, like where you start like smelling badly and, you know, to your point, like people get really bad wrinkles. Like those are really good incentives to not want to smoke. So I love that. So how do you, as a, like in your practice, how did you start tying those two together? How did you tie together like this incentive-based behavior or trying to figure out an emotional trigger to get them to like want to care, not just, hey, that's bad for your lungs. Uh, hey, you're going to look like an old, you know, shoe if you don't fix this. Like how, what was yeah, your just, thoughts? Sometimes it's about making a pro and a con list. And for people who can say, all right, I know this is bad for me and I'm continuing to do it. I'll use smoking again just because it's a really tangible example sometimes it's difficult to talk about the intangible mental health pieces but if we took smoking somebody might say okay smoking cigarettes is really bad for me but when i get stressed out i reach for one so we might write a letter to themselves or come up with a list here are five reasons why you should not smoke cigarettes and we'll decide before you smoke one just read over that list as a way to talk back to you because our brains trick us in those moments so when we're lacking motivation or we're tempted by something our brains will try to tempt us into doing certain things, whether it's picking up a cigarette or a drink or skipping the gym today because we don't need to go or other these unhealthy habits that we indulge in or the good habits that we skip. It will kind of talk you into it and it's got mm -hmm. some tricky ways of doing it. So sometimes when people have like a list that they've written and it's in their own words of don't forget, this costs you a lot of money or this is costing you your health. It can be one of those moments of like, okay, I'm not going to do this right now. I'll, I'll uh, engage in this other behavior instead. So it's really about having people figure out what their motivation is and that voice in their head, how they can talk back to it when they're in a moment of temptation where they feel like, ah, maybe I'll just give in for a little bit today. Uh, I love that. Uh, we, I, we interviewed BJ Fogg on the show and he, uh, who wrote Tiny Habits. And uh, BJ was saying like creating prompts for yourself, which is what I just heard you say. Like, what are the, what's the prompt that's going to like get me to change that, that behavior, right? What's that reminder? Um, and right. I love it. And I really, really love what you just said. I have, I have a really good friend. He's a former uh, guest on the show. His name is Eddie Prez. And he said, we're all honest liars, right? And like, I feel yes. like our, our brain is so good at convincing us to do stuff that, that is not necessarily in our best interest. Um, and, and then, and no one's gonna say, well, I, I lie to myself all the time. Like, that's like, that's, I mean, I'm the, I, I love lying to myself. No one's ever gonna say that, but, but we do it, you know? Right. Um, so that's such a good point. Um, and so, so how did that, like this work, like you, and it sounds like a, when I was looking through your bio, were you originally working when you noticed this, was this with working with, with children? Cause I know you have a background, a, a pretty deep background working with children. Was it with kids or was it with adults? Like where, where did this really start popping out from? Well, I started working in, in rural Maine, where in rural Maine, you don't get to specialize in anything because oh, okay. I'm like the only therapist for the 100 mile radius. <laughs> and then it became my sister was the other therapist. So you're stuck with one of us. And so, you know, therapists in New York City might specialize in OCD and 14 year old boys. We were pretty much all you got. So I saw a lot of kids because there were some therapists who just really felt uncomfortable with kids. But um, I saw a lot of kids for a while at one my first job. And then my second job, I uh, saw a mixture of uh, adults and kids. And so, um, once you started like, comp like doing this work, 
how did that translate into, you know, the really where you're at right now? Like kind of tell us a little bit about that story. So it was three years to the day that my mom passed away. She had a brain aneurysm. So she was here one minute and gone the next. My 26-year-old husband died of a heart attack. Obviously, at 26, you're not supposed to die of a heart attack. And it was a cruel twist of fate that it was on the three-year anniversary, of course, of the day that my mom died. Like, what's the chances? Which, by the way, today is the anniversary of the day that my mom died as well and my my husband. so sorry. And, um... Well, so far today, all is good. Knock on wood. So yeah, yeah. every year, <laughs> my sister and I have developed a sick sense of humor too when it comes to this time of, of the year. I'm like, well, let's see what goes on this year. Yeah. Um, but after my husband passed away, I'm 26. Like some of my friends are just talking about getting married and they're talking about kids someday. And I'm like, oh gosh, who am I now? And how do I fit into the world? And how do you get through life now that I've lost like the two most important people to me, my mom and my husband. And I was just in a really dark place for a long time. And I don't even have any words to say other than like, it was dark and painful, but I'm supposed to be a therapist who helps other people deal with their problems. And obviously I am just heartbroken and unable to do that for a while. I was able to tap into some short-term disability benefits to take some time off from work, Yeah. but I had to go back after a couple of months and figure out what do I do now? How do I keep the lights on now that I'm down to one income and what do I want to do? Like as a single person, I had, my husband and I had just become foster parents and I had to think, do I want to be a foster parent as a single mom? And we had all these other goals and dreams and things we were doing. And it was a, it took years to really figure out who am I, which goals do I are going to be mine, even on my own, which ones do I want to let go of? But it was a really a long process and took years, but got to a place where uh, I fell in love again. And I thought, how lucky am I to not just find love once, but twice, like who gets to do that in life? And just felt kind of on top of the world for a brief moment. And then my father-in-law was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And I just remember thinking like, this isn't fair. Like, how could you lose another person? I didn't want to go through this again. I grieved for like all of my twenties. And I think here we go again. And it was probably in one of my lowest days that I wrote down what mentally strong people don't do. First time I'd really put it on paper. It was the things that I'd learned in my therapy office, but needed that as a reminder. Just like we said, sometimes mm-hmm. you write down the list of things. That's what I did in my life is I wrote the list down, but I found it helpful. And I would read it every morning when I woke up, sometimes 20 times a day to just be like, yep, this is terrible. However, this is the hand you were dealt. Here's how you get through it. Just don't do these things today, Amy, and you'll be okay. So then I thought maybe maybe it would help somebody else. And so I published it on the internet and thought, eh, three people will read it and that will be it. But 50 million people read the list. One of them wow. was a literary agent who called and said, hey, Amy, you should write a book. I was like, oh, no, no. Like, I'm, I'm a therapist in rural Maine. We don't really write books. <laughs> and uh, I don't tell people about my life. I'm like, there's a backstory, but I didn't share it. I'm not going to put that out there because I'm really good at listening to other people's stories. It would be terrible at sharing my own. And she said... You don't have to, but you could. Well, I didn't even like talk to her after that. I just thought that, you know, I didn't even really know like about how writing books worked. I mean, I now know if a literary agent emails you, you email them back. (laughs) (laughs) At the time I was like, ah, and um, because so many people were emailing me, calling me, reaching out to me. I was on national TV. Like it was just so strange for somebody from uh, Maine who worked as a therapist to now be on national TV. But yeah. Within, a, within about a month, um, I, I met with her. I was in New York to do something for uh, Forbes and Fox News. 
met with her and realized, like saw her office full of books, realized she was the real deal. And I thought, oh, wow. And then within a couple of weeks after that, we had a publishing deal with HarperCollins. And the next year, my first book came out, 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do, became a book. That's amazing. What So what year did you put that out on the internet? So it was the end of 2013. And by the end of 2014, my book was on the shelves. My gosh, that's crazy. So um, how, how was the process for you for writing the book? So I knew absolutely nothing about writing a book. I was working full time and there was a, a contract issue between like, are we going to publish this in the UK or not? And it took, my deal was like verbalized in January, but it took until March, the end of March before we had an inked deal. So I couldn't talk to anybody until then. The book was due in June. Oh my gosh. And and I, I was a writer at the time for what used to be very well mine. We were about.com back in the day. So I was writing a couple days a week. I was working as a therapist full time. So I would write on the nights and the weekends and had no idea what I was doing. I was like, oh gosh, I don't know how to write a book. I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, I just felt completely overwhelmed. And again, by the time it was done, I just felt like I had this huge stack of papers and I thought, I don't know if anybody's going to read this. <laughs> That's amazing. I, I actually, I, I wrote a book and so I can, I can empathize with, with, with you on that. Like the, when, when I wrote it, my, my publisher's like 250 words a day, buddy, just take it 250 words at a time. And that, that, that got me through it. So, but clearly uh, what you wrote resonated. Um, so, you know what? I, I don't know. I, I haven't watched any of your other interviews, but um, would it, would it be, I, I think it'd be valuable for our listeners if maybe we went over the 13 things. Is that cool? Sure. Sounds good to me. Yeah. So, so um, we can do it one of two ways. We can go over each one or we can just go over them all and then kind of cherry pick. What do you, how, how would you like to do it? I'll let dealer's choice. Um, I guess let's run through and then, and then cherry pick the ones at the end that you want to talk about the most. Yeah. So um, do you want to, do you want to do the honors or can, can I uh, read them? Which, which do you prefer? Go ahead. Cause I will, I won't get them all in order off the top of my head. If uh, you're in th- front of I, you. I, I think I, I took notes. So it's don't feel the world owes them don't feel that the world owes you anything. Is that one of them? It is. I may, I may have mis- misread that. Don't feel sorry for yourself or don't the people that one of the things they do is they do not feel sorry for themselves. They don't resent other success. Don't focus on the things that are out of your control. Don't dwell on the past. Don't worry about pleasing everyone. Don't repeat the same mistakes. Don't shy away from change. Don't give up after the first failure. Don't uh, fear quiet and don't expect immediate results. Did I get them all? You got it. I, I, I read these and I was like, hells yeah. I love this stuff. Like this is, this, this gets, gets my juices flowing. So, um, you know, a couple of these, I, I, I mean, obviously look, this is very logical stuff. I don't think anyone's like, Oh, I never thought about that. It's like, like, I think right. it's just really well put together. Right. And I think that, I think for me that the, the biggest, like when I kept like taking notes, I'm like, well, I mean, I think that like, Again, I think there's a, a a displacement between logic and emotion, and and the biggest one for me that I think has like changed my life personally over the last few years is the dwelling on the past. So I'd love to talk about that because I I feel like I'm I'm a perfectionist. Okay, I'm a person who's a grinder. I'm a person that is an achiever, and when I don't like get to where I want to get to. I, what I've found, and I've, I've since overcome this over the actually fairly recently, 
um, was I would always dwell on the past. I would always be like, yeah. oh, re replay the tape and I should have done that differently. I mean, I swear to God, I was a division one wrestler in college and I dwelled on my last match in high school because most, unless you're a state champion or a national champion, you always end in wrestling on a loss. So I dwelled on that thing for like a decade after it happened, right? And so I'd love to hear like kind of if we could dive into that one, because that for me was one where like just now recently, it's still a fight where I'm like, I sit there and like, you know, pick apart like how I should have done something. But well, let's talk about that one, because I think that, that at least for me, selfishly, and the listeners know that I'm pretty selfish when it comes to questions with guests. Um, <laughs> that's the one that, that stood out. I'm like, I'm like, yeah, let's talk about that, because I think that's really hard for a lot of people, myself included. It is. And, you know, to be clear, like sometimes people dwell on the past because they get stuck because it's sometimes it's a trauma issue and, and you might need to work through it with a therapist because you get something stuck in your head. But sometimes it's just those little things like that conversation you had yesterday at lunch and you get home and you're still like thinking about all the things you wished you would have said or you just keep replaying like a mistake that you made over and over and over or somebody else did something that hurt you in some way, shape or form. And you keep replaying that over and over and like thinking, oh, I should have said this and I should have done that differently. It's our mistakes, other people, people's mistakes. But I also run into some people that just dwell on like the good times in their life. They're like, mm. well, you know, my good years are behind me. For some people, it's like when the kids were home, life was good. Now, now what? Or other people that like are convinced that college was the best years of their lives. And now it's like, ah, you know, now I'm in the real world and life isn't going to be as good. That can be just as harmful too. Like if you think the best times are behind you, like, wow, talk about struggling to enjoy the present or to make your future good. But at other times it just destroys the moment because we are rehashing the unpleasant things too. And we just can't, can't get unstuck because it keeps replaying in our heads over and over again. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Oh, I, I appreciate that. I, I like the point you made about, you know, it, working with a therapist, because I do think that, you know, for some folks, I mean, I learned for me that some of mine was just baked in PTSD, old shit that like was it was it didn't make any sense. Right. It right. Was just some, it was just reoccurring and came up. I did PDTR, which was um, which was pretty that, that was a therapy that I did that, that helped a lot. Um, but, you know, and and and, and I think that I hadn't thought about it from the way you just said, which is like dwelling on the good times, right? I'm like, that's so sad, right? That, oh, like college were the best years of my life. Or be, I'm like, right. I hear people are like, before I had kids, it was so great. I'm like, no way, man. Like the, uh, maybe I'm just an optimist. I'm like, the, the best is yet to come. Like, you know, it's like, I'm pumped for what's next. So what right. do you think, what can people do to like, is besides having an awareness, which I appreciate you said that earlier in the show, 
uh, I have a, I have a mentor, um, who I'm a conscious capitalist and I went through this really intense conscious capitalism program and he, his perspective was with awareness comes choice, right? So having that awareness, but what are some, like, what are some practical things people can do besides just having an awareness around, you know, not dwelling on the past or like, like maybe some practical things they can do to get over that or to, to be mentally strong in this way. So sometimes it's about figuring out like, why do you keep doing it? Right. Why are you replaying something over and over again? Are you trying to punish yourself for something? Sometimes mm. that's the case. Sometimes we replay things over and over again because uh, we're just like almost hoping for a different ending. Like if I would have said this, then that wouldn't have happened. Or if I hadn't done that, then there would be a different outcome. And we'd like to think our lives would be a million times better if we hadn't made this certain mistake. So I think just recognizing like what is it I'm doing there in the past? Am I trying to heal something? Am I trying to hold on to something? In my case, after I uh, lost my mom and my husband, it was like, well, the past is where my loved ones lived. And enjoying the present or moving on to the future means that they aren't going to be there. So there mm. was a long time that it was much more fun to kind of replay those old memories again. And not to say I don't still enjoy thinking about that, but I don't dwell on it 24-7 these days. So sometimes it's about that. Sometimes it's about uh, like who we used to be. We have some grief work to do around that. Somebody, and there's research on this, like if somebody won't throw away their old baseball cap, it's because my baseball hat means I was a baseball player and that was back when I was athletic and I was happy in, in high school or college. Mm. So I hold on to that. Like the items we won't throw away tell a lot about our personalities and our struggles. Oh so if gosh. you look... If you look at the things in your life that you hold on to, whether it is, you know, something from the third grade or it's like old love letters or whatever it is, clothes that no longer fit can tell you volumes about the struggles and the old wounds that you have in your life. So sometimes we talk about that, like, what do you have trouble parting with and why is that? Is it because... And for some people, it might be, well, you know, in that stage of my life, I was a really good friend to somebody and I don't want to forget that. Or I was uh, really good at something back then. Or if I get rid of that, it means I'm no longer and you fill in the blank. So that can be an exercise to help people realize, like, what's the old wound that maybe needs some healing? And then um, different exercises to figure out when you're ruminating on something like, is this helpful or not helpful? Replaying a mistake can be helpful if you're learning from it and you're going to mm. move forward with more knowledge and not repeat it. But on the other hand, when we just keep rehashing something and we're punishing ourselves, then you need some strategies about getting your mind off of it. Or sometimes we keep dwelling on the past because we're thinking, well, this is going to somehow help me make a better decision in the future if I keep rehashing and, and replaying this. But most of the time, that's not the case. Like the longer you dwell on something doesn't line up with a better solution. So catching yourself, like, am I ruminating on the problem or am I developing a solution is a good question to ask yourself. Or like, is this helpful to keep replaying that terrible conversation I had with somebody last week? If not, you change the channel in your brain, which might be, I'm going to get up and go do something else uh, to get my brain busy. I'm going to call somebody on the phone, but I'm going to talk about something different. So often we have this idea that venting is good because I'm holding in all these emotions and I have to vent them. But like, no, when you talk about something that upset you two weeks ago, you don't feel happy, you feel worse and you get stuck in that sometimes. So sometimes it's about letting go, changing the channel and saying, all right, this isn't helpful. I'm going to get up and go do something else. I love that. I appreciate that so much. You know, I, I, I meant to ask a question before this and I'm, so I'm going to get back on track. Um, you know, in the title of the book is 13 things mentally strong people don't do. What is your definition of a strong person? 
Oh, that's a good question. I'm glad yeah. you asked it. So when we talk about mental strength, there's really three parts to it. The way you think, the way you feel, and the way you behave. So the thoughts are about knowing that you don't have to believe everything that you think. As you said before, your brain lies to you. Mm -hmm. And knowing that sometimes we all have weird thoughts and let them pass through. It doesn't say who you are as a person just because you thought that or because you think you aren't good enough doesn't mean you aren't. And then the emotional piece is about knowing that you can experience a whole gamut, wide array of emotions. You don't have to be scared of those feelings, but they don't control you and you don't have to be stuck in them, that you have some control over how you feel. And then the third part is about the behavioral piece of, okay, I don't feel like doing this today, but I'm going to do it anyway, or I'm really tempted to do something and I'm going to work on not doing it. Or what can I do today to make the world a little bit of a better place? And it's about taking that kind of productive, productive action. And where people will sometimes then say, well, isn't mental strength the same as resilience? But resilience is just like bouncing back. When something bad happens, yes, let's bounce back. But mental strength is about knowing that, yeah, I can still be doing well in life, even when life is good. I don't think we should just sit around waiting for the other shoe to drop, thinking, okay, and the next time something horrible happens, I'm going to bounce back. Like, that would be a terrible way to live. But instead, knowing even when life is going well, I can still work on reaching my greatest potential. And, you know, life is tough anyway. There are plenty of challenges every day. So to say, how do I challenge myself? And we don't really know what we're capable of until we experiment and put ourselves out there and say, I'm going to test that when my brain says you can't do that. Sometimes it makes sense to say, well, we won't know until we try. Let's do it anyway. Yeah, there's a there's a cool book, um, Art, the, the War of Art. You heard of this book? Yep. Steve Pressfield. Yeah, he talks about that resilience or sorry, resistance, right? Our brain right. is like trying to maintain homeostasis, right? It's like, you can't do that. Shut the fuck up, Darius. Like, don't go, don't try that, man. And, 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 and I read that book and I was like, yeah, fuck you brain. I'm going to do that. You know? Right. Like, so is, is what, you know, you said something a moment ago and, and I'm really curious, what is the difference between like resilience? I think you define really well, but what's the difference between being a strong person or someone with grit? Because I think like, is, are they like, where's, is there overlap? Like, how do you see if I want to build, like, like, I think I have two kids, right? I have two boys and I want them to be gritty. I also want them to be strong. I, yep. I, I'd love to hear what you believe is the difference between a gritty person and a strong person, or are they the same? So I think one of the main differences from what I understand about grit is like, it's about not quitting. As terms of mental strength, I'm like, nope, we should quit. We should quit more often. I think mm. so many people <laughs> dig themselves into something and they're like, I'm going to be gritty about this. Like, no, you're in a failing business and it's failing more and more every day. Like, don't let your ego stand in the way, like quit. But I think so often when people think of being gritty, they just think I, under no circumstances am I going to quit. And it comes at a cost of their mental mm. health, of their relationships, uh, of their money. And they keep going. And it's more of an ego trip of I'm going to persevere no matter what, because they don't dare quit. I am a firm believer quitting is good. <laughs> I love that. So, 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 but do you think, so I'm, I'm a person that was uh, like, I'm literally the way you just, just described, I'm like, yep, that that's been me. And so for me, I'm like, I don't really have a lot of quit in me. Um, but at the same time, when I get that message, I'm like, Oh, I, because I know that I have this like pain threshold. That's pretty high that once it's there, I'm like, I have to quit. Cause I probably should have quit 20% ago. And, I, and, yep. and I, knowing that I have a high threshold for pain, what, what's, what's maybe a more healthy, if you're someone like me 
and I'm sure there's other listeners that are like, yeah, that's me, man. Like I don't ever quit. And, 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 but then I end up in this spot, like you're describing where my mental health isn't good. I'm burnt out. I'm unhappy. I don't want to get to that point, but I also don't want to be someone that just quits, you know, like where's, I think there's kind of a balance there. And so how do you honor the, the, those two different things? I think it's about recognizing what something's costing you on a regular basis and just taking stock of that. And sometimes we think, well, once I get to this finish line, then my mental health will be better or I won't have to put my physical health lower on the priority list once I reach this hurdle or once I get this much money or once my business does X, Y and Z. But I think it's important to evaluate that sometimes, like, what is this actually costing me and where am I putting all my time and my energy right now? And is that where I would want it to be? Sometimes we set out to reach a goal thinking, well, this won't be that hard. And then it's way harder than we anticipated. And just because something's hard, we shouldn't quit. But what if it starts like consuming your life? At what point do you say this isn't worth it anymore? So I just think we should check in with ourselves more often. Like, all right. And learning a new skill is hard. Doing something you've never done before, like coming in last place with just about anything you do is hard. But those things don't mean we should quit if it's worth it to you. Like, what's the payoff? And do I want to continue to do this uh, even though it's costing me X, Y, and Z? And if you can answer that question, then I think it's okay to say, yeah, I'm going to keep going anyway. I'm going to push through this and the pain is worth it in the end. It, seem, it seems sensible and logical. You're, you're making too much sense, Amy. I've got to stop you. <laughs> well, but no, again, knowing it and doing it is very different things. Right, and I can say right. that from my own life. So so one of the things that you bring up in the book is don't expect immediate results. And you just kind of touched on that. Um, can you kind of maybe dig into that? Because I think that what I've found, at least I view a lot of folks, I see them and they start something and then they're like, it's going to be so great. And they talk about all the good stuff. And then, and then, and then like six months later, I'm like, Hey, whatever happened on that thing? And they're like, eh, that didn't work out. And, and I'm the opposite. I go into everything again. I'm like a lifelong entrepreneur and entrepreneurs like you get no's until you get a yes. Right. So my expectation is things are not going to work out. And sometimes I get surprised and they do, but, and, and so I just walk in knowing it's going to be hard. Like what, what are your thoughts on that? Like, what are some things that are, uh, like, what are some things people can do to maybe train the brain or, or get, get prepared to make to, as, as my friend Brett Gleason says, embrace the suck. Like how do, how do we embrace the suck so we can go and accomplish? Yeah, those are all good questions. Cause like as a podcaster, how many people have you heard who say, yeah, I'm going to start a podcast and they oh, either yeah. never do or they do for like three weeks and they're like, well, I didn't get a billion downloads, so that's not worth it, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, <laughs> I know. yeah. I'm not Joe Rogan yet. How did that not happen? <laughs> right. And because we always hear the end result of famous people, people that get these deals, whether it's with podcasting, with anything that they think, okay, you know, if I put in two weeks worth of work, then I'll get these huge results. So I think this one is really about sometimes just recognizing our emotions before we get started. When we're really excited about something, we underestimate the pain that it's going to take to get there and we overestimate our chances of success. Like, And people will talk all the time about emotions as if they're good or bad. Like it's good to be excited and bad to be angry. But I guarantee any emotion has the power to be helpful or not so helpful. Mm. So when you look at like if you, how excited you are about something, then you might take a step back. So first name your emotion. What am I feeling right now? When you're anxious about something, you'll underestimate yourself. When you're excited about something, you will overestimate yourself. So just taking that step back and say, well, how do I feel right now? And how might this emotion might be clouding my judgment? If you're excited about a get rich quick scheme, you might fall prey to it. If you're really anxious about something that maybe is pretty low risk, you still might be like, oh no, I'm not going to do that because it's too risky. 
because our emotions are really bad at, at judging such things. So take a step back, say, what am I feeling? How's this affecting my judgment right now? I'm like, what's the truth? And I'm a big fan of saying, let's put something on, on paper and just writing it out. Like, okay, realistically, how long is this going to take? What's my actual expectations for week one? And breaking things down into smaller steps. So if somebody, if we took podcasting as the example, when somebody says, I'd like a billion downloads, well, realistically, how much are you going to get in your first week? And sometimes, again, people will overestimate themselves. I'll get a million in week one. So maybe you do some research to find out what can I realistically expect? And maybe you think you're better than average. Like, you know, when you ask somebody, how are you at driving? Like 70% of people think they're in the top 90%. (laughs) And um, so to know that too, that we do overestimate ourselves in some strange ways sometimes, but then to say, okay, realistically, what can I expect? And then how am I going to stay motivated uh, when I'm not so excited? We see this with um, New Year's resolutions. January 2nd, the gym is full. January 18th, the gym is empty. Because what happens between January 2nd and January 18th, the motivation and excitement runs out because people are like, oh, this actually isn't as fun as I thought it was going to be. It's way harder. I'm not losing weight that fast. So just adjusting your expectations before you dive in can go a long way toward then saying, okay, and then breaking it down into shorter chunks when people are like, I'm going to be a millionaire. We don't set out to be a millionaire. Uh, overnight, you just say, well, how much money do I need to save every day to be then have a million dollars in the bank? Or how much do I need to earn in order to do to reach that goal? Just break it down into smaller chunks and then reassess sometimes like, okay, I way overestimated how much I could get done in a week. What's realistic for next week? And if you keep adjusting those expectations, then uh, it's easier to stick with it for the long haul. That makes total sense. I, I have a couple of friends and they, they use the term safe test. So create a safe test around an idea that you want to go try that might be hard that you know you can do and if you can't it's like it's not like this huge embarrassment or something it's something where so i'll use an example of i'm starting a private equity fund right now and they're like hey like what what would be the the smallest thing you could try to go accomplish and just to see if it if it's even real where you're not like you know hanging a shingle on the door and telling people like i'm raising a billion dollars right right And and then you and then you raise 10 million and you look like a loser Right. And it's embarrassing. And you're like, oh, it wasn't successful. They're like, what's the what's the uh, something I could do to prove my theory without actually, you know, where I'll get momentum from it, where I'm not putting myself at risk from a perspective of whether it's reputational risk or, you know, I'm going to beat myself up or I'm going to quit to your point. So what do you think about that? Like, how do you feel about using safe tests as a way to, you know, try to, like, get yourself motivated to stay in it for the long run? I love that idea. Like, I'll hear some people be like burn the boats. If you're going to do something, you're going to be hundred yeah. percent in go big or go home. But in reality, most people end up going home. Yeah. <laughs> so I think to really, to, to test that theory, I absolutely love that idea of saying, you know, let's, let's put something out there and just see how it goes. Like if you, any kind of goal in life, whether it's a fitness goal or a financial goal, yeah, let's like just kind of test the waters. Cause it looks easy when you see other people do a lot of these things and you kind of say, well, like I could sell a a billion of those widgets, but then like, let's see if you can sell five in a week and then see what happens. And so I I love that idea. And I think sometimes that really gives people a much more realistic expectation of how much work something's going to take and how much effort is going to be putting into this rather than thinking, oh yeah, this is going to be easy. We see shows like Shark Tank, right? Where we think, oh, somebody got a million dollar deal and all they had to do was, you know, put in two weeks to come up with an idea. But that's probably not the whole story. <laughs> yeah. You know, funny enough. So I, um, I met the former head of um, Mark Cuban's home family office and I was in a meeting with him 
And he, we were talking about Shark Tank and this, the most people don't know is 70% of all those like million dollar checks never make it through due diligence. They literally, I seven have heard out of that. 10, yeah. yeah. 70%, they never get the check because they go to due diligence. They're like, no, this is bullshit. And they don't, they're like, we're not doing the deal. So to your point, it makes for a good TV though, right? Absolutely. Right. And on the show, it looks like, wow, this is an amazing story. Yeah. <laughs> Changing their life. Maybe seven out of 10 times they don't, but. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, so I want to touch on one more of the 13 and then I want to, I want to talk about some of your other projects because you're doing some cool stuff that I'm really interested in. Um, don't fear quiet. I love that one. That one's like, I'm like, I think quiet is your best friend. That's my, that's my belief. It tells you all the shit you don't want to hear. Um, so tell us about that. What is Don't Fear Quiet? Yeah. So in the chapter in the book, I call it alone time. So don't fear alone time. But when I would call it alone time, people would be like, I love to be alone. So I'd say, well, what do you do when you're alone? And they would say, I text my friends and I'm listening to podcasts. And so I like that you call it quiet because that's what I'm talking about is being alone with your thoughts. And for some people, that is terrifying. And they'll say like, well, you know, my brain beats me up or I have so much running through my head. I just can't catch up with it. Or uh, when I finally put my head on the pillow at night, there's so much going on in my brain that I can't fall asleep. And I think proof of this is the popularity of sleep apps and podcasts that are about sleep right now. And I'm not against this if this helps somebody fall asleep. But for a lot of people, it's because they never have any quiet during the day. And the only time it's ever quiet is at night when they put their head on the pillow. And that's the time their brain starts to finally like worry about something and thinking about something and processing things. And we live in this world where everything's vying for our attention from our smartphones to uh, all of our devices and it's really tough to like, oh, I'm going to give myself even just 10 minutes a day of, of quiet time to just sit and think. And people will be like, that's boring. Or my anxiety goes up just at the thought of that. But it's so important to do that, just to assess, how am I doing in life? How's this going? Uh, what do I like to do when I'm by myself? Or what do I want to do differently? Do I have any goals? Just taking a few minutes every day to kind of check in with yourself is really important. We spend so much time planning things that maybe don't really matter that much in the long run, like a vacation. Like, that's great. You're taking a week off. But uh, you, you know, people spend months figuring out exactly which hotel they're going to stay in and what they're going to do on their vacation. But like, we don't do that with our lives. Like, kind of life do you want to have? Are you living it according to your values? Do you want to change some things up? Do you need to create some things differently? Like, what do you want to do? And if you just take a little bit of quiet time every day, I think the answers to those questions become a lot clearer. Oh my gosh. You just touched on something that, so the, the values thing, um, and, and there was, there was, I, I wrote a book called the core value equation. So I'm like a core value evangelist. So let's dive into that really quickly. And, and I, and I really want to talk about your, your podcast. So, so, um, so I don't want to, I don't want to shortchange that, but, but what do you think? Like, what is it around values? My belief is, is that values help you align to make choices, right? It becomes this filtration system for, for, for choice making. And so if one of your 13 is don't worry about pleasing everyone, I was like, and, and, and when I was reading the book, I'm like, oh, this is a core values issue. Just like, just like, I don't need to please that person because I'm going to please myself, right? Which is all around me being true to my values. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. It becomes much easier to decide what you're going to say yes to and what you're going to say no to when you know yep. what your core values are. And when I speak to parents, sometimes I'll speak uh, to kids in the morning and then the parents at night or the school faculty and I was speaking to a group of teenagers one day and I said, you know, would your parents rather that you be the smartest kid in the class or the kindest kid? 
And like every kid in the class is like, oh, this is private school. Every kid in the class is my parents want me to be the smartest kid in the class. So then I asked the parents at night, like if you went to a parent teacher conference, what would you rather that the teacher say? And it was like 90% of the parents are like, I want my kid to be the kindest kid in the class. No way. And yeah, and like 5% were like, I'd like my kid to be both, please. And um, <laughs> but we talked about that, like, and maybe that is, maybe you just felt social pressure to say the kindest, you really want them to be the smartest. But if that is really your value of I want the kindest kid in the class, like how much time do you spend asking every day? Like, who are you kind to? How are you kind at, at recess today? Or questions like that. Instead, sure. we spend so much time like, well, how'd you do on your math test? What are you going to do after high school? And we focus so much on that. So I think once we know what our values are, then we can take a look at, are we living according to those values? And again, that's where mental strength comes in. When you're living according to your values, life gets way better. Oh, way easier. I mean, it's funny. I, 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 I always tell people, you know that you're living out of, out of alignment with your values when you feel friction. Like that friction yeah. is a value, it's a value misalignment. And it's, and getting really clear. I wish this was something that they would teach in schools. I actually, I, I just finished a kid's book called What Are Core Values that I'm putting out. Okay. And, and, and so it's, it's because I'm like, they don't, no one teaches kids what their core values are. Like, like right. that's not something we're taught like in third grade. It's just insanity to me. Like, like we should be learning these things because it's such an important thing from a decision-making standpoint. You're like, like such a great point you just made. Um, I wanted to go to the podcast and then I want to talk about the, your, your new uh, project that we, we talked about earlier in, on the show, the, the, the new book that's coming out. But tell us a little bit about the podcast because, I mean, I saw like, first of all, you got some crazy guests on the show, Terry Crews, like tons of interesting people on the show. Tell us a little bit about the podcast. And, and, and I'm a big promoter of like, like people listen to six podcasts. Mine should be one and the other one should be the other people have awesome podcasts. So yeah, t t tell us a little bit about, about that. Thank you. So the podcast, it was something that my uh, audio engineer and I started by ourselves. It was called Mentally Strong People in the very beginning. And then we joined forces with Very Well Mind, who happens to be the biggest mental health website in the world, to create the Very Well Mind podcast. And now my audio engineer, he's got 12 Grammys. I like to brag about that, too. Nice. And we get to make a to record a podcast from a boat in the Florida Keys. And we get amazing guests, like you said. We called Kevin Hart and Brooke Shields and Terry Crews and Leanne Rimes and people like that, but to talk about their mental health. And it's not just celebrities. We get authors and experts and people from all walks of life, and they share their stories with us and their strategies for staying mentally strong. And it's so much fun, and I get to learn from people about uh, the, the things that they do in their lives and the struggles that they've had, but then how do you work through them and what do you do on a daily basis to stay mentally strong? So we talk about those things on Mondays. Those are our guest episodes. And on Fridays, I do a Friday fix episode. And it's just like a tip from my therapy office where it's a 10 minute show. And I describe like one thing you can try in your life this week. Oh my gosh, that's that's amazing. And we'll make sure to put this in the show notes so people can come check it out. And yeah, I forgot. I, I looked at it a few weeks ago, but the, yeah, Brooke Shields, like Kevin Hart, those are, those are some obviously interesting people. And just to hear their perspectives, that, that sounds like uh, everyone should go check that out. So um, wrapping up, I have one last thing, which is the our question we asked all of our guests. But before we go there, uh, you have a new book coming out. So love to have you talk a little bit about that for people that want to learn more. Sure. So nine years after 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do came out, I now get to write the workbook. So my new workbook is called 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do Workbook. But essentially, the world's changed in nine years. Like TikTok wasn't invented when I wrote my book. And 
like 50% of people had a smartphone back then and COVID wasn't a thing. So I wanted to write an updated version, but also to make it more interactive so that there's quizzes and exercises, reflection questions, things that people can do like, hey, I actually struggle with this. Here's some exercises. I'm going to practice them. I'm going to figure out which ones work for me and take it with them because reading a book won't make you mentally stronger, but applying the exercises will. So my hope is that the workbook will really help people say, okay, here's what I want to implement in my life. And where and people that want to get it, is it just being sold where all books are sold? What's the best way if someone wants to pre-order it? How, how, how might they go about getting uh, their hands on that? So it should be available pretty much anywhere. It's on the HarperCollins website, Amazon. Target's going to pick it up. It'll be in, in stores in Target, Barnes & Noble, all the other places too. Very, very cool. So um, we, we end every show. We love to, you know, like I said, the greatness machine is all about people who have lived their passions to create greatness in the world. And you are neither short of passion nor greatness. I love all the things that you've been working on. And your story is just so, so motivating. Um, so I would love to ask you the same question we ask all of our guests. Um, ready? Ready for the question, ready. Amy? Ready? All right, I let's am. do it. Let's do this. What is the number one barrier to creating greatness that you've overcome in your life? And how did you overcome it? I would say the number one barrier was uh, my own self-limiting beliefs and thinking I was too shy. I had nothing valuable to say to the world and thinking I couldn't possibly do anything on a bigger scale and doubting pretty much everything I was going to do. And my goal for most of my life wasn't to create a great life. It was just to avoid having a horrible life because I didn't want to be like the kid in the third grade who hated school. And it wasn't until I guess terrible things happened to me. And I went through grief and I thought, well, now that the worst has happened, I don't know that life can get much worse. And I felt that in those moments. And the difficult things taught me the lessons of like, well, if you can get through this, you can get through anything. And for public speaking, I gave the eulogy at my husband's funeral. And for the first time speaking in front of a group of people, I wasn't nervous as in the same way I had been nervous for all the other years of my life. I thought, yeah, go ahead and judge me. Or if I stumble over my words, it doesn't matter. I had a couple stories about my husband. I wanted the people in that room to hear. And that's all that mattered to me. And now like going through life, I'm like, you know, somebody judges me, looks at me weird. Or if I make a mistake, it's not the end of the world. Like I've been through tough things. I can get through whatever else life throws my way. And now I'm confident of that. Yeah, that's amazing. I love it. Such so so motivating. You're such a strong person. Oh, <laughs> well, I appreciate is, that. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, no, this is, it's really been such a treat to have you on the show. Um, so uh, look, um, obviously, there's so many different ways people can connect with you and your work, but maybe you want to plug some different ways that people can connect with you. What, what anything and everything? Have at it. Sure thing. So my personal website is Amy Morin, LCSW, as we said earlier, stands for licensed clinical social worker.com. My books, I have a course on there, uh, information on the podcast. And then I'm the editor in chief of Very Well Mind, which is verywellmind.com. And you can find links to the Very Well Mind podcast on there as well. Awesome. Amy, such a treat having you here today. I'm so grateful, so much gratitude to get to share your work with our audience and with the world and just keep doing what you're doing. This is your rock star and really appreciate everything you've done. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This was amazing. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, so audience, go get the book, go check out the podcast, go check out Amy Morin, LCSW.com and all things Amy. I love this. This is such a great way to end the week. With that said, Amy, you are a rock star. We appreciate you here at The Greatness Machine. Peace out, everybody. We love you.
you are listening to The Greatness Machine, and that's a wrap for today. Listen, if you love what you heard, subscribe to the show on whatever podcast platform that you're tuning in on so that you don't miss any of our future episodes. We have tons of great people coming on, and we're, we're stoked to have you here to enjoy it with us. Leave us a review. Tell us what you love most about this particular episode. We love getting the reviews. We love to see what you guys love most. And if this particular episode you know, made you think of someone who's leveling up in their business and in their life, print screen, share it with them. Leaders are the best givers. And after all, we're all here to support and grow with each other. And in case you want to see some of the fun behind the scenes shots or some of the things that we're doing, I'm actually writing about this in my weekly newsletter. Go to www.therealdarius.com and subscribe to my newsletter. We're talking about fun things like business and life and mindfulness and cryptocurrencies and gosh, I don't even know everything and anything, but it's tons of fun stuff I write about. I try to get it out on a weekly basis. You can subscribe at www.therealdarius.com. And with that said, look, thank you guys so much. I appreciate you. I love you. Peace. We're out of here. See you guys on the next one. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you wanna learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or wherever you listen to your podcasts.